Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Whisper it, but politics in Westminster is a tiny bit boring at the moment as Jeremy Hunt tours the TV studios demanding to know why Boris Johnson isn't touring the TV studios and we await the coronation next month. So to mark July the 4th, Independence Day, later this week, we're going to attempt a transatlantic episode linking up with David Charter, the Times US editor, and our Washington correspondent Boa Deng in Washington. And if the string between the yogurt pots will stretch, we've also got on the line Ben Hoyle, the US West Coast Bureau Chief, live from LA. Are you all there? We are here. Hi, Matt. I'm here too, Matt. Perfect. This is, this is, this is working. This is very exciting. Now, before we get down to the import, to actually talk about politics and all of that, um, just because I know, uh, I spoke to David, uh, when he first moved over to Washington last year, uh, we did a podcast about what it's like to be a, a Times foreign correspondent. Just, uh, just quickly, just talk me through what time do you have to get? I think we basically, we all get up very early just for different reasons in different parts of the world. So, um, Ben, just talk us through briefly your, your sort of typical day of being a, being the US West Coast Bureau Chief sounds very glamorous. Is it glamorous? It, it doesn't feel that way at 5.30 every morning. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 5.30 is a line. I get up at five o'clock. The killer is having deadline pressure almost immediately there is, is, is what it's, it's not so much the early morning. It's the having to switch on straight away. Uh, so I get up, I have a front-loaded day with lots of uh, frantic writing and coffee drinking for the first three to four hours of the day. And then you're using a lot of the rest of the day working on longer-term pieces, features and stuff. What time in the morning for you do you have to get everything filed by? Sometimes the earliest deadline might be 8 a.m. And that can, that can go through till first edition deadlines. I can still be filing at 11:30 midday or when you go to bed the night before you never quite know how uh whether you're going to be in for a, a lighter day or an extremely heavy day than the next morning and then you're also working last thing at night going through the next day's american papers so that you can make suggestions uh to the news desk that they can pick up while i'm asleep <laughs> so you make a suggestion but you don't know whether they're going to take you up on your suggestion until you get up in the morning Precisely. And then you go off and spend the afternoon, what, just hanging out with celebrities? That's very much the plan, mostly. (laughs) And I'm hanging out with the Kardashians. A a lot of the rest of the day is working on longer term stuff, things for the magazine or for T2 or for uh, longer news pieces that, you know, where you've got the luxury of a bit of time to work on them. And just very quickly, most famous person you've interviewed for The Times? I've done Tom Ford, the clothes designer, a few weeks ago, the bosses of both 
Apple and Microsoft and Samuel L. Jackson. Well, that'll do. That sounds that's more glamorous than me doing Andrea Leadsom and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Matt Hancock. OK, uh, Washington duo, David and well, what, what how does your day sort of plan out? We, we get a lie in, really, yeah. don't we? I mean, you know, it's six or six thirty over here. Oh, wow. on the East Coast. It's great. <laughs> but then, it, you know, you've got kids. They, they tend to wake you up at that time anyway, because. <laughs> That's what they do. But it's straight. You're straight into it. As as Ben was saying, it's uh, straight on to um, to first of all, onto Twitter. Why do we do that? Because because Trump is is probably awake at the same time, just getting up at the same time. And, yeah, or even earlier. Sometimes yeah. he starts tweeting at four or five in the morning and you never know what you're <laughs> going to wake up to, like Ben was saying. But it's slightly different kind of surprise for us. <laughs> When we found war with New Zealand or something, um, yeah. so <laughs> that also gives you a jolt. Should, should we make it clear at this point that we don't actually share a, a bedroom or a house? My wife picturing it was like um, Bert and Ernie. That was that was sort of set up. Um, and David, when we spoke, I think it was back in September, you said that one of the problems we try to get to grips with this administration in the White House is just when you think, oh, this is a good person to get to know, they suddenly disappear, right. they either quit or they're fired. Or I, I get the sense that that's that's a trend which is. It's still happening. The, the very, very frustrating thing was that I really felt I was on the cusp of an interview with Sarah Sanders. We were, we were having a bit of email banter. It seemed to be, it seemed to be rather, rather close. But maybe that she was actually just demob happy, and I, I personally think she just hung on so she could do the UK visit and go and see the <laughs> Queen. I think she, in her mind, she'd left months ago. You know, maybe. We know it's been a hundred days since since there's been a White House press briefing, you know, or more. And um, I think she was probably demob happy, and uh, I, maybe the interview wasn't that close. But it is it is very frustrating. It's it's hard to know exactly who to cozy up to, if you like, to to try and get those inside details that we that we really need and those steers that would really help guide the story. And there are one or two people who have been a bit longer serving. You know, Hogan Gidley has now been around for a while, hasn't he? But uh, it, it, um, it was Bill Shine, actually, who was um, the guy I went to see in, in the White House, what we spoke about, um, who, was a, who was the communications director uh, back in September. But uh, he, left, he left within about uh, <laughs> when, we, when we spoke. You also, before we get down to business, we'll talk about Donald Trump in detail. But you also, because you are the U.S. editor, you had high hopes of getting out of Washington. Have you managed to do that? I have, actually. Yes, I have. Um, the, the midterm elections were great for getting to see a bit of America and finding some of those states and some of those uh, constituencies or districts which um, were going to be um, going to tell us a story about the election. So yes, I got to I got to about five different states, and it was. It what was, was your favourite, David? Um, I actually I did like uh, I did like going to Wisconsin on on the lake. I, I've never seen any of the Great Lakes before, so that was my that was a first. And of course, my first Trump rally was was always a big moment that was and that was also on the great lake actually that was in erie on lake erie and that uh, in northern pennsylvania in fact <laughs> and what about you bo do you do you get out manage to get out of washington i do it's been it's been very nice being being american it, it's not quite as quite as exciting for me to go to <laughs> <laughs> uh, where are you from originally china originally but i grew up in texas actually okay. yes which uh, it's, everyone's very surprised by that often but i, I have a lot of gun-toting neighbors um they're all, 
but yeah, I, I, it's been really good. I mean, elections, as David said, are, are really good for getting to go out and see the country. And, um, I got to see Trump, uh, at his, his 2020 launch, um, in, in Florida, which is, I, I've been to a couple of uh, Trump rallies because I was here covering the 2016 election as well. Um, uh, but that was definitely the biggest one. And there's something very, you know, if you close your eyes, it could be a very hot, very humid, uh, sort of Woodstock. <laughs> they had, they had at a big concert outside, complete with you know guitarists playing. Yeah, the music's always pretty good. The at music a Trump is always rally, really yeah. good. Yeah, um, playing sort of you know the Jimi Hendrix riff on the the Star Spangled Banner, and then you open your eyes and it's suddenly sort of a lot of uh, retirees with their hats and their flags, and it's a bit of a jolting moment. But um, but but that was the most recent. And before that, I went to Pennsylvania. Uh, yeah, fun state. David's also been to to see to see Joe Biden. Um, so I should say that we do do other stuff apart from politics. I have recently been in Southern Ohio with teachers learning how to shoot so they can defend their children. So that's that's a wow. That, yeah, that's one coming up. That was an amazing experience actually, going through a. A, a school active shooter response training course. It's one one that's in my notebook. It's coming up. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Well, let's. I'm, I'm sorry to have to drag you back to talking about the politics. It's much more interesting. But let's let's start with the obvious, the great big obvious thing in American politics. Let's talk about Donald Trump. And this is David Charter. So um, we've just had another really extraordinary Trump overseas visit slash stage performance. And this time it was at the G20 in Japan. He once again all but ignored America's traditional Western allies and made a great show of meeting some of the world's baddest autocrats. And he seems genuinely comfortable in their company. I'm not sure if that's some kind of reflection on the world of New York real estate that he's come from. The rather brutal realpolitik causes it some collateral damage, which causes some of the criticism back home. Things get a bit overlooked, you know, like human rights, media freedom, that sort of thing. The trouble, I would say, apart from that, is that he does seem to enjoy their company rather too much. And we've seen rather little in the way of tangible results. One more talking point that we should mention is the prominence of Ivanka um, in, in the G20, who became first daughter to cross the border into North Korea. And the question there is, of course, what, what's, what's the game? Is it kind of simply raising brand awareness or some kind of apprenticeship for greater things? So, David, to what extent do you think, I suppose, if you think that the ends that he's looking for are doing a deal in progressing American interests around the world, that's one thing. Is it possible that the ends are just photo opportunities swaggering about on the world stage? It winds up the liberals who he can't stand if he's seen shaking the hands with sort of the world's baddies. Do you think to some extent that it's a win for him if it just meeting Kim Jong-un again or Vladimir Putin or whoever it is? I think it's personally exciting for Trump to do this and he revels in it. He thinks that it shows he's a strong leader if he's meeting the strong men of the world. But he, sooner or later, he does know he has to deliver some tangibles, I think. And we're beginning to see, you know, the beginnings of perhaps even a consternation in, in the Trump administration over where this North Korea thing is going. What is Trump going to get from the, uh, yeah, is, is, is he as, as, um, has been reported in the New York Times today, pre prepared to settle now? for simply a, a freeze in the nuclear situation in North Korea rather than getting rid of all nuclear in the country. 
just some kind of deliverable that he can talk about on the campaign trail. But we shouldn't underestimate, should we, quite how significant it is Donald Trump set foot in North Korea. We've sort of become slightly immune to almost every day does something that's, you know, extraordinary for a sitting president. But this is extraordinary for a sitting president. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to David's point, um, he's very good at creating these sort of you know, photo opportunity moments and things that will play well on the screen. And um, that moment when he sort of crosses over and shakes Kim's hand. I mean, there's, it's all, it's been playing all over the networks. All the news channels um, have coverage of it. And it's something that he going into an election can point to and say, look, you know, I may not have gotten full denuclearization, but I've made progress. It's an image you can point to and say, I've gotten him to the table. I've gotten a, a freeze, if that that is indeed yeah. what's. And one of the things I think, Matt, that he's been that really is a big deal for Trump is that he is better than Obama. So Obama uh, had a policy of kind of freezing out uh, North Korea, and then on the day of the handover, if you like. Uh, of, of power, he warned Trump that it was the most difficult thing in his intray, that war was a possibility. War could, could be imminent with North Korea. And of course, Trump has made great play of saying, you know, Obama got nothing in eight years. I've got them to stop nuclear tests. I've got them to stop long range ballistic missile tests. Uh, and we, and we've got a dialogue that is, that is going to produce uh, results. It's really, it's really a big deal for him that he's doing better than Obama. Yeah, I mean, did. he's tweeted about it. Um, and as, and as far as being the first sitting U.S. president to set foot in North Korea, it, it is also a study in contrasts because, um, you know, as as some listeners might know, uh, Jimmy Carter, a former president, has been to North Korea. Um, Bill Clinton had that photo with Kim Jong Un's father, where they're sort of all sitting very. <laughs> looking very stone-faced um, when he went over to, I think it was to negotiate the release of some, um, some yeah. American hostages. Um, but they were never sort of images that you could point to as something that's got the fanfare and the greatness and the sort of pizzazz of, you know, crossing that line and having that. And, and Donald Trump is sort of a master of that kind of, you know, staging. Um and and I, especially for his um, for his supporters for his uh, sort of key constituency, those are the kinds of things that are very easy for them to point to to say, yeah, Donald Trump is doing really well on foreign policy, despite you know <laughs> all of the things that they, that he's done to sort of uh, ignore our allies and um, all the sort of um, things that make. He's, he's, and he's got to show has, but he's what, what he's really got to show is that there are there are meetings with Putin with Erdogan with MBS in Saudi Arabia. And we, we're just not really clear what America is getting out of it at the moment. They're, 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 at the moment, the Democrats um, on the other side and some nervous Republicans w- worry that there's there's a bigger downside at the moment. So he's got – he's somehow – and Trump, as much as he enjoys the meetings and the and the visuals, I, I do think he th- – he believes that he's got to 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 have some something tangible, to, more tangible to talk about on the on the campaign trail next year. So he he wants he wants something. I mean, the lack of war 
is is a big deal. That's that's a very <laughs> that's uh, good. That's always good. A lack of war. That's, uh, yeah, that's always it's always a good you know tweet tweet better than war war is what they what they say around here. I guess. <laughs> and and that's very America first. You know that America first was about bringing the troops home, not getting Americans killed or taken hostage overseas. Um, and it, in some ways, that's something a talking point he can he can he can bring from from these uh, outings but you know does it bring for example the the middle east peace process closer um not really erdogan um is dead set against giving any money to the the palestinians in the way that was proposed in by jared kushner's peace peace plan and erdogan is busy buying uh, russian missiles um you know much to the uh, uh, chagrin and and uh, of the of the um of the american um Defense Department, which wanted them to buy Patriot missiles. So, you know, the, uh, there's a lot of potential for for these these um, these love-ins with these autocrats, uh, essentially, to, um, to 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 come back to to haunt Trump on the campaign trail. How much, David and Gordy? How much do you think that foreign policy will really? move the needle when it comes to the election not very much it's never it, I, I mean i don't know what your view is on this ben but like it's never americans don't care you know like i think well that's what that's what i was going to ask i mean ben you're i mean you're you're geographically closer to north korea than at, at sort of any other part of america <laughs> it's still a, for missile you mean yes you're you're, within, you're, you're probably within range uh, yeah. but it's it, it's you. still a very long way away and in terms of you know where it falls on the list of concerns uh, of the average American. I mean, presumably, True. if Trump is out and about shaking hands with world leaders, it makes him look like a big dog on the world stage. But are people following it any more closely than that? I mean, I think, obviously, you know, there are plenty of people who who, who are, you know, renting their garments uh, in despair at, at uh, how he goes about his foreign policy. But I, I think I agree with very much what Bert was saying, that uh, what he's doing is providing... Uh, easy, memorable images that if people care at all about foreign policy, it'll just enable them to think, oh, Donald Trump is meeting all the important people and crossing, you know, historic uh, dividing line into North Korea. And, and that ticks the, the little foreign policy box that they might have uh, and enables them to feel that he's the strong leader that he promised to be. So I, th- I think there is uh, the if, if you're looking at what he's doing in enormous detail, then perhaps you're not of a pro-Trump persuasion, particularly. <laughs> I, think, I think foreign policy can can lose you votes, especially if stuff goes wrong, like you know, with Carter, with the disastrous foreign expeditions, the Iraq War, uh, for example, um, was became became more and more unpopular. And Trump is is, is very um, vocal about how what a disaster that was. I think if, if Americans are getting killed overseas, it's not good for a, for a president. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, no, you, I think you're right. I mean, there's a there's an enormous domestic focus. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the thing, right, is that there is a huge division in how we in Washington or on the coast look at politics and what's going on and what – like real Americans, quote unquote, even though it's uh, the, yeah. encompasses, encompasses a, a very you know broad range of uh, of people um, think about politics. And for your average American, it's not a thing that you're involved in every day. And the thing that you're going to see is the, the sort of 
you know, five minute news bulletin uh, at the end of the evening and, you know, Trump shaking hands, uh, Trump going overseas. And if you look at what he actually says and and does and you're looking, as Ben was saying, in detail at, at what's actually going on, it, it can be a bit, you know, it can be right. a bit terrifying. <laughs> I, I, I agree up to a point. I mean, but, the, you know, the, let's not forget that his problems with China have spilled over into this, yeah, you know, fan, fantastic yeah. sanctions uh, and, and tariffs that are hitting American farmers. And, you know, across the Midwest, the American farmers are really feeling the pinch. They can't sell their soybeans to China anymore, for example. And Trump has had to whack in emergency uh, state funding to the tune of billions and billions of dollars to, to help to help get American farmers through this difficult year while he negotiates with, with China. So it might be not be immediately obvious to, to a lot of people, but the, um, the, the foreign um, entanglements can have huge repercussions at, um, in, in the ballot box, I think, if it goes wrong. Yeah, yeah I think you're right. I think that'll make it, that, that'll make Iowa really interesting. Because um, Iowa switched next. to Democrat, you know, the, the Iowa, Iowa had four, four, four House seats in, in the, in the midterms, and it went from three Republicans to, to three Democrats in, in the midterms. So. so he has to avoid a self-inflicted disaster in foreign policy. Right. But other than that, he doesn't, I don't think he has much incentive to resolve, uh, any or, or secure a huge win at this stage in many of his other foreign policy priorities. It's more about being able to show that he's active and doing things in North Korea, in the Middle East, uh, in Syria, you know, with regard to Russia or whatever, so that he provides this, this narrative that he is projecting America forcefully around the world in a way that he says Obama didn't do, isn't it? And, right. the, and the, yeah. the, 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 the coverage of the UK, you know, state visit was, was wall to wall. It was, it was all over the American media for days. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was a fan, fantastic, you know, photo op and, and uh, <laughs> uh, that was basically, that was basically all it was, though, wasn't it? I mean, in terms of, well, uh, and, and, and just because, uh, you know, being, just being a bit British and domestic about it, was it all Trump and the Queen with, did Theresa May get a look in at all? No. Oh, no, I don't think we were <laughs> It was Trump, and just like Trump really, Trump was absolutely ob- obsessed with the Queen and, could not stop talking about how fantastic she was. Yeah, but no, and not just how fantastic she was, but how fantastic she had found him to be as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And just to bring it back to, to David points, David's point earlier about uh, tr- you know Trump and always having to project being the best and the strongest and the whatever is some of the the sort of funny speculation with respect to North Korea is. You know, he's sort of angling for a for a Nobel Prize just so he can say, you know, haha, like it's not just Obama. Not just Obama. Again, right. again, it's, it's, it is, so it's, much of it comes back to bettering Obama yes, it's one all the time. I think yeah, he's, he's, he's quite interesting. Well, okay, let's um, let's park Donald Trump for a moment and let's talk about whether or not uh, there's anyone who can beat him. This is Bowden. Two dozen candidates are vying not only for the Democratic nomination, but to define the soul of the party, which in the age of Trump has struggled to find a coherent identity. In 2016, party bigwigs were caught out by the strength of support from the left, for Bernie Sanders, a Vermont senator who identifies himself as a, quote, democratic socialist, and also took for granted blue-collar union voters who had been the bedrock of democratic support in America's Midwestern heartlands. Have they learned from their mistakes? Or are the Democrats' candidates still unable to truly understand the move of the country? But it does seem quite extraordinary, this, that even after, what's it been, two, three years, the Democrats still don't seem to have got a handle on what to do about Donald Trump. Do they try to ape him? Do they try to outflank him? Do they go completely the other way? 
is that is that a fair reading of what they're doing? Yeah, I think it goes even beyond Donald Trump to there's this real question of what the Democratic Party stands for. You know, in 2016, they were really surprised by the support for these sort of quite startling and quite sort of leftist policies that seemed to come out of nowhere with the momentum behind Bernie Sanders, um, who came out and said, you know, we need to have uh, free health care for all, free colleges, uh, really sort of strengthen the unions, become much more protectionist in our in our policies, which was something that clearly um, Donald Trump was also, uh, you know, was a part of his platform. Um, and there was a real rift in the party but that really damaged, I think, Hillary Clinton in the general election uh, because there was just a lack of both a lack of enthusiasm for her and a feeling that a very large and very sort of important constituent within the the, the voting bloc was ignored and was even sort of undermined um, through the, the the primary process, um, and that never got resolved. Trump is now president. The party still doesn't know whether it should be the party of sort of working people who. Uh, Supporting things like raising minimum wage, vastly changing the, the healthcare system, or a party that sort of tacks more to the center, tries to pitch to, uh, you know, voters that they lost in the last election. Um, and then you have all these other social issues as well, um, racial issues, um, issues of gender that have been really discussed uh, quite prominently, but at the same time, does it really sort of resonate with your average voter who doesn't really like Donald Trump, but at the same time can't really get excited about, you know, reparations for slavery or, uh, you know, provide more access to health care for, for migrants? So it, I think it's a, it's a question that goes beyond how to address Trump, but sort of how how do we sort of, um, or how do the Democrats uh a sort of uh, stitch together this these disparate interests um, of this, you know, generally we're not supporting Trump, but we also aren't so excited about anyone that you put uh, on the field and these two dozen people who are vying for the for the candidacy. Yeah, I mean, there, were, there seem to be more people running than there were running to be prime minister of the UK. So who <laughs> people who are interested in politics of the UK looking across, who are the names we should be keeping an eye on? You know, we could discount all the others, but who are the ones who are having a good run at it so far or doing something interesting who might be able to sort of capture a bit of the, the public interest that's been lacking so far? Early in an election, um, you know, we're still about 60, more than 16 months out. The, the general elections isn't until November 2020, which seems like a very, very long time from now. Um, it, it's usually people who already have a bit of name recognition. So Joe Biden, vice president under Obama, enormously well known. Um, you know, everybody knows who he is, is, is clearly a front runner at the moment, um, given that he's been around for so long. But part of the problem with, with Joe Biden is that many people are sort of think he's a, a man of the past. He's got this long track record with a lot of flubs and a lot of things that just don't seem to be in step with the modern party. So, It'll be sort of a question of how much will that will that hurt him, and I think it, it definitely will. Then we've got uh, people like Bernie Sanders, who, as we mentioned, uh, ran last time around already well known, already has a campaign infrastructure um, in place. Then there have been some um, 
surprising insurgents um, this time around, uh, who especially after the first televised debate that happened uh, last week, um, have really sort of become visible um, to a wider public. Um, so Kamala Harris, who is the senator from uh, California, who sort of had a, had a very impressive night, went head to head with Joe Biden. Um, she's the daughter of immigrants. She's a, uh, a black woman. Um, she is a, was, is a former prosecutor. Um, and so it sort of ticks a lot of the boxes that seem to jive with where the energy um, of, the, of the party is right now. Um, Obama really liked her. Um, he once called her the best looking attorney general in the country, uh, which I don't think <laughs> went very well for him that night with Michelle. But anyway. Um, and he still hasn't endorsed Joe, so maybe he's saving it for a camera. So, yeah, we don't, we don't know. <laughs> then there's Elizabeth Warren, um, who's a senator from Massachusetts, who, who was sort of very clearly the front runner on the first night. Um, she, you know, she has a very impressive resume and has uh, done some impressive things as a senator um, in D.C. because her her big thing is a, a finance reform. And she was responsible for forming a board that a consumer protection board, a, a financial watchdog for consumer lending, I think. Yeah. The thing with Warren is that she she has everyone knew she had intellectual firepower and she had this long academic background but she's really surprised people by what an effective campaigner she's been so far the, the retail politics side of it talking to people at ground level generating conversation and ideas and dominating the discussion in the race uh, she, she's been able to do that more effectively I think than people anticipated hasn't she she, she had a sort of rather aloof uh, image perhaps beforehand and she's been more effective than people expected at actually speaking in a in a recognisably human language. Uh, <laughs> she was also beaten up by Trump. I mean, Trump uh, pigeonholed her with a nickname of Pocahontas because um, she claimed um, to have and 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 has used in in the past um, her Native American ancestry uh, as a as a, a kind of a. A Trump card. However, when she took a, a DNA test to answer critics who said she was abusing this lineage, it turned out that she had actually rather, rather little DNA from the Native Americans. And, um, and ever since then, it's, it only reinforced the, the, the Trump attack that uh, she was, she was rather, she was overdoing it. And, and it seemed to have almost knocked her down, but she's, she's got right back up. And as Ben has said, she's had the most ideas and, and the best worked through policy suggestions that these candidates are all pitching to, to Democrats to Democrats to, to, to get them the nomination. And then the last sort of person who's made a really surprise surge in the in the polls is Pete Buttigieg, uh, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, a town of 102,000 people. In the fourth largest city in India. Fourth, oh, I don't know if we can count it as a city if it's <laughs> only about 100,000 people. But he's incredibly, um, he's done incredibly well. Um, he's got this really, really impressive resume. He's a veteran. He's um, openly gay. He's uh, a concert pianist who speaks something like eight languages, a Rhodes Scholar. And he's a millennial. He's, he's 37. Yeah. Um uh, he's, you know, he's incredibly well spoken and sort of um, more of a centrist and more of someone who says, look, you know, I'm from the Midwest and I understand national security because I was you know, deployed. I understand, uh, you know, these parts of the country that the party ignored. I understand young people. 
um, who are going to bear the brunt of things uh, like, you know, the coming economic changes brought by the changes in technology and climate change. He's he's been the one who's really come from nowhere Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and impressed the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, from from that perspective, you know, isn't it, all the other people we've been talking about are uh, senators or former senators. It's also worth saying, not just openly gay, but openly gay and married. And right. he's also, he's on top of that, he's extremely comfortable talking about religion and faith yes. uh, in a way that really connects with voters and, and be going beyond that and pointing out uh, the hypocrisy of people who drape themselves in religious uh uh, or or pe- pe- people who, who lay claim to being people of faith, but then uh, use that to justify policies that, that uh, are harmful, you know, hurt uh, many people. Uh, it'd be very effective with that. So just just finally, then, before we move on, who do you think will get the Democrat nomination? And is Trump beatable? I'll start with you, David. Um, I'm going to go for Kamala Harris, uh, which may I don't know if that will surprise Ben or not, or actually steal his thunder. Sorry about that. Ben. <laughs> um, the, and the reasoning is that they won't eventually go for the leftist side, which is either Sanders or Warren. Um, and, and Biden will fade. And I've seen Biden give a couple of you know, live performances, and he's been pretty poor. Um, he's, he, he's not great at thinking on his feet, um, responding uh, quickly. Uh, he, he, just, he just seems to not have, not have the edge that's necessary somehow to, to get through this bruising um, and very long uh, process. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm to stick my neck out and say the first, first man or first first husband Will be Kamala Harris's husband and not Pete Buttigieg's husband. <laughs> and you think you think she could win? I think she could win. I think she could. But wait, you know, you've got to bear in mind that America is incredibly divided. It's a 50-50 yeah. split between conservatives and liberals. Um, there are independents, but there are fewer and fewer independents. The Trump era is, is driving people into both camps. What, what I'm wondering is whether the anti-Hillary vote tipped Trump o- that tipped Trump over the edge. I don't think all of it will stick with him. I think there are a lot of women in, the, in that anti-Hillary vote who will come back to the Democrats. I think there may be there may be um, uh, ethnic minority voters that Kamala Harris would could attract uh, that that would add to her that would add to her tally. Okay, Ben, who do you think? I, for the sake of picking someone else, I would go with Elizabeth Warren. I agree with David uh, that I think Joe Biden looked so slow on his feet uh in the debate last week that i i think it's it's hard to see him sustaining the advantage he's got at the moment i think warren potentially i think she she's she is uh she, she would be an, an extreme candidate uh but but at the same time if she can continue to reframe her ideas about america for the blue collar workers that trump uh, peeled away from the Democrats, that could become an, she could, she could look like a very effective candidate in the sort of marginal states, um, that the Democrats badly need to win. But I could see, uh, I could still see them picking from, uh, several candidates at this stage. I also think that, um, whoever they pick, uh, Trump has a, still has a great chance. I mean, you have to, you have to say historically, uh, precedent strongly suggests that a sitting president with a thriving economy 
is going to win re-election. And although Trump's a, an extraordinary president in so many ways, <laughs> um, so that incumbency counts for a lot. And finally, Bo, who do you think? They picked my uh, gonna, my choices. But you've got to go for the real wild card now. I, uh, yeah, it's <laughs> Hillary. It could yet be Hillary. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's me. Uh, no, um, I I will say I I do definitely agree with Ben and David, both having seen Joe Biden and having seen the Trump launch. That Trump has an incredibly good chance, and that Joe Biden, by contrast, on the ground is just not looking like somebody who could generate the enthusiasm to get people to turn out to vote, um, at least now. I mean, you know, for Trump, people who really like him, really like him, they'll queue up for days to wait to see him. They're really energized and enthusiastic and going to turn up. And the thing about American elections is, you know, it comes down to who you can get to come out to vote and to get people to come out to vote on a random Tuesday in November, you have to be enthusiastic and, um, I just don't, you know, I didn't see that enthusiasm with Joe Biden. The, the enthusiasm for, for Trump is definitely still there among people who, you know, who like him. I think I'm with David. Um, I think Kamala Harris could do it. I've not, um, David has seen her live. I've only seen her on, uh, the debate, uh, stage and she looks quite good. Um, and, and I've seen her in sort of Senate hearings. Uh, my question would be, you know, whether she, can connect with voters in a sort of human way. What Ben was describing earlier that Elizabeth Warren has sort of surprised people with because she can come across at least on, you know, in Senate hearings and on, on, on television, quite prosecutorial, like quite like she's, you know, in a courtroom asking questions. And that, that doesn't, I don't think that sort of gets people excited. Um, and I, I wouldn't, be surprised though, or, or I, I think I'm going to stick my neck out and say I think Pete Buttigieg could be on the ticket as a vice presidential pick because he brings a lot of strategic uh, sort of balance to the ticket, being a Midwesterner, being a centrist. You know, if if, if people get sort of too scared about um, about the more left leaning policies, that the candidate is the whoever at the top of the ticket is more. You know, the fact that he's a veteran, all those things we talked about. I think the difficulty for for Mayor Pete, as he's called, um, is that with those constituencies, um, you know, with African-Americans, he might struggle. Um, with my, you know, he's sort of the mayor of a very not a particularly diverse uh, city. Um, it doesn't have a lot of experiences, never won a statewide or national election so i see him as a as a vice presidential pick but i, I would say maybe a, a harris Buttigieg ticket the battle for all of those candidates that we've just picked is is getting their names well known enough by the voters because i think the polling so far suggests if, you know if you look at just the horse race biden and bernie have been way ahead of everybody for much of the race but if you look at amongst people who are actually following closely it's the candidates that we've spoken about that people are really interested in. And so it just that there's a big difference between you know, Biden and Bernie have been well ahead because they're the two best known candidates. And it's if uh, the likes of Harris and Warren and Pete uh, Buttigieg can close that gap and make themselves better known to the, the voters that aren't paying incredibly close attention, uh, then they, they look like very appealing candidates. And whose dog is that? <laughs> that's, that's my, he's, he, my, my dog, Indiana. He, he thinks Joe Biden's going to win, but I, I don't. Right. 
Okay, well, in a sec, we'll move on and we're going to talk about drugs, just as as there isn't enough to talk about. We'll be back after this short break. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Welcome back to the Red Box podcast, crossing from the UK to Washington with David Charter and Bo Deng. And now in L.A., this is Ben Hoyle. It's now been five years since the first legal recreational cannabis went on sale in Colorado. Since then, legal recreational weed has spread to 10 more states. Illinois became the 11th state to legalize recreational marijuana last week while medical marijuana is now legal in 34 American states out of 50. California, where I'm based, the biggest potential market, introduced legal weed last year. And although bureaucracy and the black market have so far impeded the green rush bonanza that was hyped up in advance, there is still an expectation that this is going to be a multi-billion dollar industry in this state. The question that I'm interested in is whether America itself is now ready to legalise marijuana nationally. Now, Ben, this was uh, interesting timing because heading home on Monday night uh, back in London, the London Evening Standards front page said, is it time to make cannabis legal? Mm. And they've got polls and stuff in there and the, the, the editorial sort of basically weighs things up into the, the, the idea of uh, legalising cannabis. So it, it's, a, it's clearly a debate uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, but obviously America has gone further by different states legalizing it what impact do you think it is having in california where you're based i mean i i think in in california at the moment it, it it's 
it's been a chaotic start uh, to legal recreational cannabis because um, at the same time that they legalized it, they also gave every single municipality uh, an opt-in or opt-out option. And 80% of them uh, chose not to allow marijuana shops in their um uh, in their territory. So there, a huge number of people have, have flooded across the California seeking their fortune in the, in the burgeoning marijuana industry and have found that there are far fewer opportunities than they were expecting. And it's taking, uh, typically about a year to get your license. It can cost up to a million dollars to get a business just up and running, which has held it all up. Uh, and then on top of that, it's an extremely, uh, uh, it's, a, it's, an, it's an extremely difficult business to, to get in to, to, to set up uh, because marijuana is still illegal nationally. And that creates enormous problems for um, simple things like banking for a business, because most national banks won't touch uh, businesses that are involved with the marijuana industry because they're worried about uh breaking the law essentially um, so so although you could set up a local business you wouldn't be able to bank the money that's a lot of, exactly a lot of, so a lot of the teething problems that the industry is having in all the states where it has appeared are to do with the, this sort of weird patchwork nature of how america has uh, introduced legal cannabis um so if you look across the border to the north in canada they've taken a completely different approach uh, where instead of it being a sort of grassroots local thing, uh, it's been, uh, it's come through parliament. Uh, it was something that Justin Trudeau campaigned on, uh, in, uh, when he was running for, for prime minister. And it's been introduced by the national government, um, with a, a primarily a sort of health, uh, argument behind it rather than a entrepreneurial argument. So they've, They've taken a very different approach, and I think perhaps one that you would want to follow if you were Britain rather than the American. <laughs> yeah, ben is, is, is quite right in, in that because um, I actually had an, an experience for, for a story <laughs> for the Times uh, about legalization in Washington, D.C., where it's also it, the, the state-federal divide is, is very clear because some parts of Washington are federal land and other parts of Washington are the city of Washington sort of municipality land. So, you know, you you can legally have weed on one corner uh, across the street from Capitol Hill. But once you set foot onto the lawn, then you can be arrested uh, because that's federal land where it's illegal. And there are all sorts of, you know, as Ben mentioned, um, just strange loopholes um, and ways in which the laws are written in di- different um, jurisdictions. So in Washington, you're not allowed to sell marijuana, but you are allowed to gift it and you're allowed to grow your own. You're allowed to have up to you know, a certain number of plants per number of people in a house. Um, so all sorts of strange sort of gray market ways of getting around the law have, have, have come up where you've got people you know, selling um, cookies and as a you're, you're paying $60 for the cookies, but you get a free gift with your cookies, which is <laughs> uh, which the, the time very uh, very kindly paid for for me to do the story <laughs> so, so yes so let me so so let's dig into this a bit more so your what what was your times experience that you you referred to what did you have to do for this story for the times 
So, so, so I, I, I sort of, I did a story um, about this very problem where the city of DC, um, you know, there's a push to legalize, but because um, of the federal restrictions and, um, you know, the laws in in Washington, some of some of them have to be approved by Congress because of the sort of federal local divide, um, and. Because you can't legally sell pot in, in, in DC, I actually had to go and sort of purchase and, you know, see if they would, if I could purchase, um, some cookies. They were just normal cookies. And a, a, a very nice man showed up at my door with a, a basket of cookies and then said, would you like a free gift? And I said, yes. And my free gift was really the, the purpose of the whole, of the whole exchange, which is that I got I, like a quarter of an ounce of, 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 of pot, which I now, which I, which is actually, in fact, now I still have because I obviously do not use it. Um, it's just for the purpose of the story. But which is now actually, um, I can't believe I'm going to do this on a podcast. But I possess illegally now because I've moved across the the river to Virginia. So um, <laughs> to some, I better gift it to David while we're still on DC uh, property. But. Uh, uh, but which is now, you know, illegal um, because in in the state of Virginia, it hasn't, you know, the recreational possession. I'm pretty sure hasn't been legalized. So it's just a vast. There's just a vast, a vast complexity with it. But just two things to to, to Ben's point. Um, there is a push to to sort of liberalize parts of the sector. You know, there is a, a bill that's um, been introduced in Congress to allow the banking system to handle sort of weed businesses. It's called the, the Safe Banking Act. Um, and it, I think it just had a hearing last month. It's being put forward by, of course, um, a Democratic congressman from Colorado, one of the first places where the first place for recreational uh, cannabis went on sale. Um, and so, you know, there is there is some movement. But I, I, it strikes me, and I, I don't know, Ben, if you, if you agree with this, assessment but I, I wonder if there's you know a bit of a parallel I think with maybe like you know where where same, same sex marriage was pre 2015 where you had sort of a patchwork of different rules and different uh, standards you know you could have civil unions in one state and you know anti-sodomy laws in, in another state that were still in the books and until there was a federal Supreme Court decision um, that gave you, you know, the the battle didn't feel like it had been won for for people who were advocates of same sex marriage. And I, I I suspect that you know there is a bit of a feeling of that if you are a, a pro, you know, that until that happens, the battle you know hasn't been sort of won. And that's a very is good it, comparison, but the, the the Supreme Court is is not what it was in 2015 either. So that's. That adds an extra layer of complication, doesn't it? The Evening Standard poll here that they had in the paper on Monday has got poll of the UK. 47% are in favour of legalising cannabis, uh, 30% are against. Uh, it, what's the sort of split in America? Is it just straightforwardly down on Republican-Democrat lines? Democrats are more in favour than Republicans. Is it sort of just another symptom of the culture war? If you ask Donald Trump what you thought, he would say what that he's more interested in getting jobs back for to make America great again rather than. Um, and then, so there's Axios had a poll uh, poll uh, last month uh, that 63 percent of Americans support legalizing marijuana nationally, wow. uh, which is obviously a lot more uh, than there are for either party. Um, so I think it does. It, it does cross party lines to some extent and, and the, 
11 states that have legalized don't exactly map uh, onto the most liberal parts of America, although they do include some of the most liberal states in America. Um, but they also include some marginal states that, that are looking for ways to boost their economy. Um, Trump himself is, he, I don't think he's, uh, uh, I mean, let, let me know if I'm wrong about this, but I, I don't think he's really ever taken a public position on marijuana, but he did, he has relaxed the laws on hemp, uh, a cousin of marijuana, to help the farming industry. Uh, and he has now got an attorney general who's very relaxed about marijuana legalization compared to his first attorney general, Jeff Sessions, who thought marijuana was as bad for you as heroin. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so uh, remarkable. You know, we've come a very long way from, from, you know, Nancy Reagan and the war on drugs and, you know, marijuana is a gateway drug. Um, in 2016, actually, um, I remember when I was in Iowa um at the Republican um, caucus, um, I had quite a few people say to me that they were Rand Paul supporters. Um, a liberta- he was a libertarian candidate, he's the senator from Kentucky, he's still there, um, because of his stance on legalization for marijuana. It was people who had children who were sick or parents who had undergone cancer treatment. So there is, um, I think, one of the reasons it cuts across party lines is because of um, – you know the the sort of medicinal side of it, um, as as Ben was saying, you know had, had Trudeau and the Canadians have sort of taken um, that it you know it, it is it is much less sort of uh, sort of a left right split. You know, it's not like same sex marriage. <laughs> yeah. In that, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Um, and I, I, Trump, I think, has followed a policy of sort of you know the states should get to decide. Um, and, and yeah, and, and as you said, um, still at a very experimental stage, really, in America. Because states are clearly think the jury is out, and, they, and they, they're quite happy to let places like Colorado be the be the test bed for them. It's quite hard to study. I mean, I think Ben um, had pointed out earlier that there's, you know, and I think part of the reason why it's difficult is because it's still illegal at the federal level. So you can't really. I mean, there's only one place where, if you're a scientist in America, that you can get. Uh, you can get cannabis if you're trying to do studies on, on cannabinoids and it's grown at the University of Mississippi and it's the sort of underground lair where they grow these plants and, and it's nothing like the stuff that's being sold on the street, which is like much more, much more potent. Um, I think that's a good point. I, th- I think one, one of the things that could conceivably, uh, m- move forward ca- cannabis legalization nationally would be if in Canada, where the, where it, because it's legal, they are able suddenly to do lots of research and lots of research is being done. If that starts to generate real excitement about the medical benefits or, or other benefits of cannabis products, then that could, that could start to, to change the conversation. Cause at the moment there's just an enormous welter of wild claims being made both in favor of and against cannabis. And there's an enormous amount of disputed, uh, data and not very much uh, really rigorous information out there one way or the other. Just finally then, it's July the 4th this week. What do you all do to mark Independence Day? What 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 happens? <laughs> do you do anything apart from maybe 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 this is the opportunity to crack open the weed? 
unfortunately, unfortunately, neither Bourne or I will will be will be um, smoking up on July the fourth. We'll be working, and unlike the rest of America, we'll be working in in maybe not in the office because I, I I was once here in, in Washington on July the fourth, and all the offices, the office that we used to have then was was just all locked up. We just couldn't get into it. But mm-hmm. so Trump has has put himself in right in the middle of the Washington D.C. Um, Fourth of July, Fourth of July celebration on on uh, on Thursday night, and so we, one of us will have to go along and watch that, and one of us may be going off to see uh, one Kamala of our Harris. one of our Democratic <laughs> candidates in the name of Kamala Harris. Yeah, she's Kamala Harris is making the most of her 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 boost from the debates by spending a few days in Iowa, and she's got. She's having a July the fourth uh, event, I believe, mm. that we may we may go to. So, unlike the rest of America, you'll be working hard for the yeah. times. Very good. What about you, Ben? Just found out today I might be going to Las Vegas to interview a poker player. <laughs> <laughs> you sounded very pleased with this assignment, Ben. Um, uh, well, <laughs> uh, well, uh, a massive thank you. Thank you for taking time out of. The, I can't even begin to work out what time of the day it is with all of you, but. Um, my huge thanks uh, to David Charter, Bourdain, Ben Hoyle, and Indiana the Dog, uh, live from uh, the USA. Thank you very much. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 